Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Joe Zalot, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. Before introducing our topic and guest, I would ask that if you enjoy our podcasts and would like to support them, as well as support the mission and ongoing work of the NCBC, to please go to our website, ncbcenter.org, and click on the red Donate button. In part one of this interview, John DiCamillo discussed the NCBC's consultation service and his first year as director of the center's personal consultations department. In part two, John now focuses on the department's fellows and interns program, explaining its rationale, as well as the important work our fellows and interns are doing in the area of consultations. He also looks ahead and explains how our fellows and interns can both support and serve the NCBC in the future. All right, so you, you, you've started talking about the fellows and interns, and I think that that's a, a really uh, a really good direction that the NCBC is moving towards in terms of its consultations. But I wonder if we can just kind of backpedal a little bit and, and just tell us about this fellows and interns program, what it is, and why you think it was so important to initiate. Yeah. So the fellows and interns program is essentially the the flagship program of the new department. I, I, it had to be there from the beginning. It was a critical part of my vision for how we could ever possibly increase our capacity um, to, to field consults. And uh, and also it fit obviously perfectly with the vision of how do we form new ethicists. <laughs> yep. uh, and so, you know, in that sense, the fellows and interns program is um, a way for people to become involved and engaged with the NCBC actually fielding consults or assisting in the personal consultations department with one of its basic activity areas. We, we have four activity areas. The first is the fielding consults. The second is the operations. Um, then we have content curation, which is how we build out and improve those template responses or other resources that can be used in the fielding of consults. And then finally, we have that personal engagement activity area. So those are the four activity areas of the department. So fellows and interns basically can assist with any of those um, areas of the department's activity. And the fellows and interns are effectively the staff that we need <laughs> to, to make this all happen because there's really no one else on staff at NCBC who's, who's doing this. So by bringing in some unpaid interns and some fellows who have a small stipend, um, they get the experience of fielding consults or being exposed to the consults and the content of those consults as part of the work that they're doing to make the department grow. Uh, and so, yeah, so in that sense, I mean, I saw an absolute need for it, both from the bigger picture of, hey, how do we get people to actually get practical mentorship type experience with ethics consults um, that, so that when they either stay with us in the future at some point, let's say, you know, maybe they become ethicists at the NCBC somewhere down the road, or maybe they're going to go then into Catholic healthcare. Um, but they've already had a year as a fellow, for example, you know, fielding a lot of consults with me, mentoring them, you know, giving them that that framework and the the on the ground experience of how to answer and what considerations go into this so that by the time they go into Catholic healthcare, they're equipped with not just concepts, right. but practical applied practical. experience under mentorship from an NCBC ethicist. Yeah. Uh, and similarly, again, for the interns. So some interns can field consults. It depends on their um, how much formation they already have um, with respect to whether they did our certification program or are they in a master's program or something like that for bioethics. Um, then they're able to field consults. Otherwise, they can help with certainly the other areas of the department 
so we can get undergrads and, and other people uh, who you know maybe aren't quite at that level yet in terms of their academic formation, but they are very much able to help us with a lot of the day-to-day the -day tasks uh, that need to be done um, for keeping the service moving, operating efficiently, and, and so forth. So how does this, I guess, maybe kind of mechanical questions in a sense, but how does, how does this program work and what do you hope it will achieve ultimately? Yeah. So, I mean, the way it works is if someone's interested, for example, in becoming a fellow or intern, um, there's a website submission form and they go to the form. They just put in their basic information, letting me know that they're interested, hit submit, you know, and I'll get an email alert, you know, with that information. And at some point <laughs> in my very busy <laughs> schedule and overwhelmed <laughs> year that this has been, I will get back to them uh, and, you know, say, hey, you know, thanks for this. And, you know, if you're interested in applying, let's discuss more details. When's your availability? You know, is there a particular time frame you prefer? Um, you know, are there what's your, you know, can I have a CV? So we can have a little conversation about what your interest areas are. And so where you might fit best, because the internships are very, for example, flexible, um, as compared to the fellowships, which are specifically a one year time frame. So the right. you know, fellowships are unpaid, they're flexible, they're remote, uh, intern, uh, uh, and fellowships on the other wait, did I just say which one did I say? The internships are the flexible ones. That's, yeah, <laughs> okay, the, the fellowships are set in stone one year. Um, the start date might vary, but it's a one year period and you get a small stipend and you have to field consults and you can also help or actually have to help with some other area of the department activity for that one year period. They're also remote, though. And this is actually a big part of the whole idea of the fellows and interns program is that I want people from all over the country, since we're a national organization, right. I want people from anywhere in the country to be able to come to us and have this kind of experience, not just people who are local to Philadelphia or forced to move, you know, the young people. So, um, so this is, you know, the way that that works, you apply with your interest, I respond to you, if it's an intern, we work something out, if it's a fellowship, it's a more formal process, which I've been kind of ironing out in this first year. Uh, and they're actually going to be some significant changes for the second year. But the way it works so far is basically, again, you submit your interest. I reply to you, say, hey, you know, um, if you'd like to actually apply, here's how the program basically works. And I'm going to need your CV and I'm going to need to set up a date to interview you. And we're going to have a conversation about it. And then there's going to be a selection deadline. And at a certain point, we're going to be communicating who was accepted as a fellow or not. But if anyone didn't get accepted for the fellowship, they could always be an intern if they would like. Um, and there are other ways to collaborate with us as well. But um, so, so how does it work in terms of once you're in? Uh, the idea is you're a fellow or an intern. Let's just take the scenario of fielding consults for a fellow. Uh, you're basically going to be put on our rotation for a schedule of fielding consults. And you're going to take all the email submissions that come in on whatever day you're assigned to. It could be weekends, could be the middle of the week. Uh, you're going to answer all of our online form submissions. But I'm your supervisor, so I'm going to mentor you. Um, you're going to answer the questions, but I'm going to review your responses, and I'm going to quickly check to see if there's any egregious errors in there, make suggestions <laughs> on how to, you know. That's a good thing. <laughs> just, yeah, just so you're aware, there is quality control. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, you know, make sure there's no egregious errors, make some suggestions, recommendations. Hey, maybe you could have included this or that resource in addition to what you already had, et cetera, et cetera. And then it goes out the door. So that's, that's what that piece of the, the program looks like. Then you're going to have some other tasks that you would do in addition to fielding consults, like maybe helping me, you know, with um, uh, 
uh, responding to donors or helping me with uh, building uh, better templates for the responses, right? So taking some of the learnings from actually fielding consults into, hey, let's make a better template response on um, proportionality and dialysis or something. And what are the key things that should be in that template response that then we're going to be able to use for any other fellow or intern who needs to answer a question of that sort, they're going to have that basic information already ready. Uh, so you could be part of that. That's the content curation piece. So that right. that's, you know, the, the basic idea is, again, number one, fellows are fielding consults and two, they're doing some other activity within the department to help improve the way it works. Uh, interns may be fielding, maybe not, but they're also definitely doing some tasks that help make the department run well. And I am infinitely grateful to all of the fellows and interns that we have this year because they've really made this happen. Without them, none of what we've been doing would be possible. Yeah. So just a couple of clarification things. So we'll, there's a, um, we'll, we'll put in the show notes the link for people to apply so, so people can, can, can do that if they wish. Just to clarify, John, because it was, it got, I think you, you misspoke a little bit there, but yeah, just to sorry. make sure everybody's clear, <laughs> just the fellowships are a year long and they have yes. a stipend. And the internships are, there's not a nece necessarily a set time frame, and there's not a stipend with the internships. That's correct. They're unpaid, yes. The internships are unpaid. Fellowships are paid. They're both remote. Uh, fellowships are one year. Internships are uh, at the discretion, uh, basically at my discretion in communication with you. But I generally prefer, um, and I put this on the website in the latest iteration, you know, I generally prefer if somebody's able to commit to um, six months or more, even right. if it's a small amount, like five hours a week or something, because then that gives greater continuity and I don't have to keep up with constantly changing and new agreements. And, right. you know, so it just, yep. it helps also. Yep. And, and frankly, one of my goals, uh, back to, you know, when you're asking a bigger picture with fellows and interns program, one of the goals of the program itself is actually also to foster greater connection between NCBC itself as an organization and, people who are looking for that greater experience and greater connection with our organization. So I also have a tendency, for example, deliberately to prefer candidates who, both for internships and fellowships, who express some kind of strong interest and, and, and commitment to the NCBC's mission. You know, have they been a member of the NCBC, a student member or something? Have they done our certification program? You know, what, what, what can they demonstrate to me that suggests I really care about NCBC and would like to have a long-term relationship with NCBC, even outside or beyond the internship and fellowship, as opposed to, you know, someone who's coming and saying, man, oh, I just need a great way to get, you know, a bunch of, you know, hours fielding right. consults so that I yep. can go on to this other thing. You right. know, it's like, that's great. And this will be helpful for that person. But again, I'm trying to help us build a network community of people who are tied to our mission, care about our mission and align with our mission. And so, you know, candidates who are looking to commit more from the standpoint of NCBC's mission, short and longer term, are going to be preferred, broadly speaking, even if someone else maybe has better credentials in some right. cases. Right. I want to just follow up a couple of questions about fellows <clears throat> answering consults. So again, it's only the only fellows will answer consults, Insult, interns will not. John, do uh, the... Sorry, just quick correction on that. That's not true. So oh. actually, yeah, fellows always will. If they're if they're ethicist fellows, they're going to field consults. Okay. But interns can field consults. Uh -huh. They don't, but they need to be, you know, they have to demonstrate adequate credentials to do so. So they have to at least be enrolled in a master's level program, for example, okay. or have com you know completed our certification program or something to this effect. So you can't just, as an intern, you can't just come in as an undergrad 
who has no background and start right. fielding consoles, <laughs> right. you know, but, but it's possible even for the interns that is part of the bigger picture of, of capacity because we've got some pretty qualified interns, by the way. <laughs> right. No, no, we do. But, but question, but so, so yeah. both fellows and interns, the consults that they're fielding are going to be only the written ones, correct? They, they won't be yes. doing telephone consults. So if, if someone calls correct. in, you're going to get one of the NCBC ethicists. That's correct. Absolutely. Which is an important, important to point out. Yeah. If you call in, you're always going to be talking with an ethicist of the NCBC. You're not going to be talking with an intern or fellow at this point. Now I envision down the road, maybe the fellows would be able to start fielding phone consults at some time, but that's not in the, even the short-term plan yet. Right now it's all focusing on emails for fellows and interns. And all of the emails are reviewed by essentially you for, yes. as you said, for, <laughs> Sorry. for to make sure that they're, as you said, no egregious errors. Right. Neil Obstadt. <laughs> no, but not just that. I actually do make recommendations. There's a mentorship component, you know, so, so sometimes, you know, a fellow or an intern might be like, you know, John, I don't really know what to do with this one. It's really complicated. I'm like, all right, let's have a conversation. Or if it's really, those. yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. No, there's, you know, I want to emphasize that there is a mentorship component. I mean, some, some of the consults are much easier and, and, more consistent than others and can be answered readily without much editing on my part of an answer. But other ones, hey, it's like, all right, we need to have this conversation. What is an important principle here? What is the key thing we should be saying? And we'll have that mentorship conversation with the fellow or the intern who's trying to field that consult. All right. So, John, you mentioned a couple of times uh, response frameworks, email templates, resources, lists, things that you're building into the to the written responses. Some people would say this would kind of sound like a, a lot of cut and paste work for the interns and the fellows. And I was wondering, has have you or others considered creating frequently asked questions or kind of auto-generated consult responses for frequently asked questions? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And I, I have thought about that. You know, I've actually thought about it over the years, even internally, we've discussed among the ethicists before, you know, the whole department and fellows and interns program it's, we've kind of said we should really, you know, make more FAQs on this or that, et cetera. And I think that's great. Um, but honestly, for the department and its aims, I've actually become convinced that that's not a priority for me and for the department. In other words, I'm not my goal is not maximum efficiency, in terms of getting the most number of consults out there with, you know, basic answers. My concern is with forming people, you know, and go, this goes back to the consecration of the sacred heart and the whole idea of, I want to connect with people. Mm -hmm. And so I want to encourage if we, even if there's cutting and pasting, which there is, there still is personalization that has to happen on the part of the fellow or intern who responds. They actually do have to kind of make their own analysis specific to that case. Cause you can take a bunch of quotes you know, and stick them together <laughs> and, and still, you know, not actually clearly answer the person's question. Exactly. And so, and that again, is part of the reason why I personally look over all the answers because it's like, well, you know, I want to make sure that if this person asked a question and you didn't just give them a bunch of cut and paste on a related topic, <laughs> you know, it actually has to answer their question. <laughs> you can give them more, but you have to answer the question. So, you know, that's, that's part of, in one sense, why there is this personalization, but, but generally, I want us to stay away from the notion of auto-generated responses or, you know, too much effort to make FAQs can actually detract us from 
that personalized response. Again, I want to engage with these people, learn who they are, know that if they connect with us, for example, there's one huge thing that, that we're, we're missing if somebody doesn't connect with us. If you do connect with us, we know your name, we're going to pray for you. In fact, that's part of the, the framework for every email response is I'm, we're going to be praying for you. Like we are going to pray for you by name. <laughs> when I answer this question, I've now had an encounter with a person who has a situation who lives in a particular place. And I can think of this person and pray for this person in a personal way. And you have two persons, right? The person asking, the person responding. And each of them is being formed in this process, right? The person who is asking is being formed because they're going to get all this information and some guidance and resources from the person who's answering. But the person who's answering, if that's an intern or fellow, is getting formed by the very process of having to answer the question. <laughs> you know, so to me, this is like, this is glorious. This is like, we want more personal. We want more people being formed. We want to share that experience rather than making a maximum sort of, you know, AI efficient automatic system where, yeah, I mean, you can make an app and there are some out there, you know, like the healthcare, you know, decision tree app or something, right. which is very useful. But but that's not what I want NCBC to be, right? That's not what I want NCBC's personal consultations department to be. I don't want us to be just an app, you know, that, that a highly skilled developer with an ethicist kind of, you know, designs all the automatic answers that auto generate when you press the right button. Right. <laughs> you know, I don't, that's not, I want us to be personal. And back to that sacred heart, back to connecting real people prayer connections, community connections, you know, you become a part of our NCBC community when you actually ask us a question, you're engaging with us, we're engaging with you, we're praying for you, and we ask for your prayers too. And, you know, we hopefully we can, again, together kind of start to bring this very real and personal dimension of our faith into life. <clears throat> yeah, you brought up artificial intelligence, and I'm just wondering, is there any role for that, I'm thinking like a chat GPT or anything else, is there any role for that within the NCBC's consultation service? Or is what you're saying about what, how you envision the department, does it, does it preclude any of that? I mean, I'm not going to say that there's absolutely no place where any kind of AI or auto generation could be put to use. I certainly don't have the skill set to do it, right? <laughs> right. I don't think anybody yeah. here does. Yeah. Maybe, maybe, maybe we'll find, you know, among the future fellows and interns, somebody who's, you know, a great familiarity with the technology, which, you know, if it can be used to, for example, reduce the amount of cutting and pasting or something like that and give you, you know, an initial auto-generated response that then a real person still has to review and personalize, maybe. I right. mean, I'm not going to say absolutely no. Um, I don't see that anywhere in the near future for us. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's to the extent that it can be a way of you know, helping pull together the pertinent information just from the technical side, sure, something like that might come into play. But, you know, as I said before, I want us to be personal. And so I want a real person sending that email out, reviewing that email, adjusting it to make sure it actually answers the real person's question. And so that when you get it, if you hit reply, you can say, hey, but I didn't understand this. And you're going to get a response from the real person right. who just sent you the question. <laughs> You know, and, and there's that ability to say, hey, thanks. I really appreciate that. And those are meaningful human interactions. Even if you don't get to meet, you know, physically with that person, you're still having a real human interaction, which I think is enriching for all involved. And and I'm highly hesitant to, to give any more space to chat GPT <laughs> than, than we need to. 
<laughs> you know, I'm listening to you speak about the fellows and interns program, and I'm, I'm wishing, you know, back when I was in grad school or, or you know, early years of, of teaching and what that, I wish there was something like this available to me. I mean, this sounds great. It sounds like a wonderful opportunity. And I'm just wondering how much interest has there been in this program during its first year? Yeah. So considering that um, I didn't do a whole lot of promotion because uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was very busy with a lot of other, you know, nitty gritty work with the spreadsheets and all that stuff. We did a little bit of promotion to launch the department, you know, and one or two emails here or there, just update people. Considering that, we got about 15 applicants for the fellowships, and mm -hmm. we only have two fellows this first year, and it's looking like we're going to have three for next year, which is great news, but still 15 applicants for three spots. <clears throat> I was really impressed. <laughs> and not only that there were 15 but the credentials of those who applied, I mean, I think there were at least four who had completed PhDs, four who were PhD candidates, you know, several who were master's candidates. And so, you know, I think this is, and not only that, many of them had done our certification program, or maybe had also done those with PhDs, had also done master's. So, I mean, this is a really impressive group, I have to say, and, and I'm very, very grateful and honored that each of them considered applying and, and trying to pursue this route. So, so yeah, that, I think that's a very positive sign considering I really didn't do a lot to promote it. And, uh, when you talk about the interns, oh my, <laughs> there was, I think at least 40, you know, internship contacts, people who submitted their interest in an internship through that submission form. So again, regrettably, I'd say my average response time is on the order of one to two months because <laughs> I just don't have time to, to keep up with them. But, um, but of the 40, I, I mean, we have six, I think seven right now who've gone through and completed or are currently active as far as interns. And we're, we're recording this on May 17th. So we have if at least four who are in the wings that I'm still talking with about beginning internships in the coming months. A lot of the, most of the six who are on right now are planning to stay on at least for some other short renewal period. So, I mean, we're looking at it a pretty substantial group. It could be 10 interns over the course of the next year, plus three fellows over the course of this next year. And and I really am hoping to get a part-time position for someone who could assist me with managing and supervising the fellows and interns. But that's not determined yet, but that's in the works. <clears throat> wow. As you were speaking, all I could think of was the movie Field of Dreams where they say, build it and they will come. <laughs> there you go and that's kind and of what's going on <laughs> and it's amazing and i have to say i want to you know a particular shout out to two individuals here as far as especially the fellows and interns goes and and that lined up with the whole de launching of the department one is andrew kubik dr andrew kubik who is has been teaching at john paul to uh, the great high school in virginia for nine years at bioethics did our certification program years ago, which is where I met him, did his PhD at Regina Postalorum, which is where I had done mine. And he was a postdoctoral ethicist with us two years ago, a personal consultations fellow this year. And, and I wanted to shout out to him. Why? Because in large part, I mean, he came to me saying, you know, do you have a fellowship program? This was like three years ago. Right. <laughs> and, and I said, well, no, we don't, you know, but let me see what I can do. 
and ended up, you know, essentially launching the, the first ever postdoctoral fellowship in which he was the, the postdoctoral fellow. And he was instrumental in, you know, sort of urging me on that way, inspiring me to say, hey, people want this. There's a need for this. He was a good candidate for it to sort of do a pilot program. It worked very well. And when I saw that it worked very well, the postdoctoral ethicist fellowship with, with Dr. Kubik, then it became very natural for me to say, oh, well, I could do this with more fellows. You know, we create this new department. We can have a number of them. <laughs> And, and the other is uh, Benjamin McCullough, who is my first intern in the personal consultations department since the official launch. Because again, in, you know, he's somebody who came to me like two years ago, just wrote to me because a professor of his was actually a friend of mine from college. He was at, he was at Wyoming Catholic College. And he's like, hey, I'm really interested in getting into bioethics. You know, do you have any internships? And, you know, I'm like, well, no, you know, not really. We can work something out kind of thing. But then he came back, you know, a year or two later, and he's like, hey, like, I really want an internship. <laughs> like, is there something we can do here? What could this look like? And again, it kind of gave me that impetus to say, you know, this is just the, the nth reminder. Now, we did have other interns before, don't get me wrong. But but it was just in a, in a sort of specific way, like seeking the consultation fielding experience. And that was kind of what was unique also with Benjamin's situation and, and, and Dr. Kubik is like, you know, the fielding of consults is really important and we really care about NCBC and we'd really love to be able to do this. And it kind of gave me that extra push to say, you know what, let's make this happen. And we can do a fellows and interns program with this new department and we're going to and we're going to do it that way. So thanks to them in a particular way for being part of that impetus that of launching the whole department and, and creating this fellows and interns program. So John, we've completed or we're getting close to completing the first year of the new personal consultations department. And I was wondering if you could let our listeners know what are its major accomplishments. I think you've talked about some of them already, but also what would you do differently if you had it to do all over again, or maybe ask another way based on what you've learned this year, how will you improve the department moving forward? Yeah. So in terms of the biggest accomplishments, I mean, I think number one is the fellows and interns program itself, because they're, they're, they're real people. They're getting experience. They're forming themselves as new ethicists, future ethicists potentially. And, you know, that it has worked very well through um, the assistance they've been able to provide me with uh, tracking all the data in particular shout out to Alex Fleming there. He's the intern who's been helping me with all of that and doing a phenomenal job. All the expel the spreadsheets. The <laughs> He's spreadsheet. my right hand man with the spreadsheets. We He's get the good. spreadsheets. Believe me, we get them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're keeping the ethicists on their toes. You know, who missed which consults? <laughs> <laughs> I don't have any missed ones. I just want you to know on those, the last three months or, or whatever we've been yeah. doing it, I have not missed any consults. I think you're doing better than me, actually. <laughs> Oh, goodness. But yeah, so, you know, just clarifying the data, you know, tracking the data better, creating the frameworks for responses, which I've seen has functioned well across, you know, six, well, two fellows and probably four interns who are actually fielding consults. And the system is working well. The framework is very helpful. The actual process, the procedure for how those draft consults are reviewed by me, for example, is something that took a lot of work to mm -hmm. implement, you know, how does it work, tweaking it, getting it to work better. So now it works very smoothly. And that's also quick, smooth, you know, so that's, I think, a big accomplishment, because that's the very sort of thing that addresses the capacity problem, right? Once I've got a system that works smoothly, where, you know, 
four interns and six fellows can be sending me, you know, emails and drafts in a clear systematic way that gets automatically sorted that I just go through and sort of tick them all, check, check them all off and run through and make edits and get them out the door. I'm fielding, you know, three, four times as many consults essentially as I was before because I have them preparing me the drafts and then me going through and doing the expert review for suggestions, modifications, and final approval. So that's been a big success. And and yeah, so I'd say, you know, identifying and engaging this pool of talent of solid fellows and interns who are doing excellent work is is the biggest accomplishment. And the work that they are doing is part of the, the accomplishment itself, too. As far as moving forward. So, I mean, I guess I would say, number one, if I had to look back... I don't think there's anything I would do differently, <laughs> not because I think I did it all great, but because honestly, I was so overwhelmed at times. I was really just trusting in our Lord to sort of guide me. I did my best to do my part, but it was kind of like you could start anywhere. You know, I've got certain objectives and there are a lot of tasks you could try to start doing. And I just said, you know what, let me follow his lead, see what seems to be the best fit and just move forward a little at a time, trusting and hoping that I'll be able to keep up with it all. And I haven't kept up kept up with it all very well, but it's been enough <laughs> for things to move forward. And and I think to to get the foundations in place that are going to allow us for the changes in the second year that you're just asking about. And and what do I see for that second year? Now that we've put in all of these solid foundations with the data, with the processes for fielding consults, we've got the capacity issues in place and the data. Now we can focus more on promotion. The personal uh, engagement, okay. you know, so this is what I'm seeing for our second year, which is what we're going to be entering when this podcast comes out, you know, entering this June into our second year. My focus is going to shift now more to let's get the word out. Let's have more email campaigns. Let's have more marketing, you know, of the service, getting people aware that this is a free service, that it's for them, getting it to the people in the pews, you know, anything we can do to start fundraising, bringing in more money. We, we, we need the support for that to bring in more fellows and to mm -hmm. continue to enable the department to, to expand and to grow and to reach as many people as we can. I want to, I want to hit that 10,000 number. It won't be this year, but, <laughs> but we're gonna, we're gonna grow it. <laughs> I gotta be honest with you. That number scares me. <laughs> uh, yeah, it is a little scary. It is a little scary. It, it'll, it'll take, it won't be all at once. I hope. <laughs> <laughs> just be careful what you ask for. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> John, where, where do you see the, you talked about your vision for next year or the second year of the department. What about long-term future? Where do you see the department five to 10 years from now? Yes. So that actually. Don't say, don't say 20,000 consults. No, yeah, I won't say that. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> no. So actually, one of the things I see in the bigger picture ties actually back to the whole mission of NCBC and how we were founded, which is um, research. So, you know, as some people may know, but maybe not many of our current listeners, we were the, originally the John Paul XXIII Medical Moral Research and Education Center <laughs> when we were founded in 1972. So research and education were right there in, in our name. And so I think there's, there's one sense in which in recent years, We've been doing a lot of awesome work behind the scenes, you know, advising bishops, advising dioceses, hosting our bishops workshops, uh, doing lots of great public policy work, educational programs, etc. But I will say, I think if there's one area where we could use some improvement from the standpoint of how we were founded, it's the research area. And, you know, obviously, each of the ethicists has their own extensive background of research and publications and things of this sort. But I think as a center, 
we're not necessarily a hub of research anymore. We have our publications department, which brings in a lot of outside scholarship and gets that in front of our readers, which is phenomenal. But when I'm thinking of research, the kind of thing I have in mind is NCBC doing deeper dives and developing its own positions on issues. And that's something we haven't done a whole lot of in terms of the nitty gritty of complex, complex consult questions, you know, like actually developing and putting out, hey, here's NCBC position on whatever, embryo adoption, or, you know, you name it, any controversial bioethical issue out there, we don't necessarily have a slate of those. We have some FAQs that are very helpful that we've put together, but I'd like to see us doing the deeper dives where we as a center start to engage outside experts and bring them to the table together with our ethicists and, and actually identify from our consult service, what are key problems that real people are dealing with that really we need to resolve because we keep getting a lot of these complicated questions and we can't seem to put our finger on it, you know, and just to take one example, one is cooperation and pharmacists, right? The, I'm not going to go into all the details on it, but let's just say there's still a lot of controversy about exactly how to respond to certain cooperation questions involving pharmacists and dispensing certain kinds of medications or signing off on them, either in hospital settings or in retail settings and what distinctions there may be there, right? So there's an area that needs to be explored is my point. And it's not just an abstract academic area. There are real people contacting right. us on a regular yep. basis with the same question yep. and we give them the best resources and guidance we, we, can, we can do, but we also realize we need to go deeper there. And, and not just for the sake of academic exercise, but for the sake of better advising these people. So that's what I see in the sort of bigger five to 10 year picture is, you know, once we've got our capacity grown and building, we've got a team of fellows and interns, we've got more people who are, you know, involved in, in, in actually responding to the volume on a regular basis, getting our name out there and bringing more volume in. We're also going to get a better sense of what are those real key issues that people are struggling with on the ground? across this country and and what are we recurrently seeing and finding, you know what, I wish I had a better answer for that. And then take that and now let's do a deep dive. Um, you know, one other, one other actually concrete example we had a little pilot of this year was the whole maternal fetal vital conflicts issue. Like with the Dobbs decision that, you know, on, on uh, June 24th, there's kind of sending everything back to the states on this issue. And we have a lot of questions coming up around, well, <clears throat> this whole distinction between a direct abortion or an indirect abortion, right. you know, when you're treating the mother, is it okay to do certain interventions that save the mother, but might actually cause the death of the child and which interventions and why? Again, I can't, I'm not going to go into all the detail here. Point being, well, my intern, Benjamin McCullough, when he first joined was right at the time of Dobbs, right when the department launched. And I said, you know what, help me with some research. Let's do a deep dive because this is a question that's been bugging me for 10 years since I've been at NCBC. <laughs> I was involved with some, you know, maternal fetal vital, vital conflict colloquium, published some articles on the issue, et cetera. And, you know, there's some real serious controversies that aren't definitively resolved under church teaching there. NCBC has its position on the matter. That, that is out there on this right. particular topic. But, you know, even that, hey, maybe sometimes we need to re-examine what the positions are, make sure we're putting solid foundations under it, you know, if it's not already there and reaffirming it more clearly or whatever that is, or maybe there may be times where we need to re-examine what we're saying. And in any case, you need a mechanism for doing that, is my point, right? And, and when and how does that happen NCBC doesn't have that mechanism in place right now. And I think the consults department, personal consultations can be part of that mechanism in the bigger picture, where again, we, we take 
again, not for academic exercise, but real life purposes. These are real questions that need real guidance. And we regularly get these kinds of issues. And because of that, we need to improve our responses. And because of that, we're going to do a deep research dive, but we're going to bring in outside experts and we're going to bring NCBC experts together so we can come to conclusion and some kind of advice that we're going to give people. And again, if nothing else, a better sense of what the resources are. Like maybe we don't find any change in, in our position or don't develop an official position because we just say it's not clear enough. But we can say, all right, but in this process, here are really key resources that people will need to consult when they form their own conscience and make their own decision on this matter, even if we don't have that, that guidance for them. So that's my bigger picture is, you know, we're going we're gonna to get at some point the sort of deeper dive to, to bring the riches of the Catholic moral tradition and good research that's been done over the decades and, you know, bring that all to bear for improving even the quality of NCBC positions and, and guidance that we're giving to the people who need us. <clears throat> Great vision for the future. I love it. Looking forward to being a part of it. So, John, what uh, final words of wisdom do you have for our listeners today? Yeah, I would say um, we're here for you. <laughs> you know, that is that is maybe my my final takeaways. We're we're here for you. We are here to help you form your consciences. We are here to help people lead saintly lives the best that they can. We are that source that that people can come to with these very complex, challenging bioethical issues that are all over the place today. We're not presuming to be the final answer. That's that's your conscience. And and I kind of am taking two things as as sort of the the guiding references for what our consultation services is here for. One is ERD number 28, which actually the ethical and religious directives for Catholic mm -hmm. healthcare services use it all the time, USCCB. It's available for free online. Directive 28 says, among other things, that you know there's we we have to provide medical and moral information and counseling as part of proper informed consent. And and it's really important that element of in order to have proper informed consent, and in general, to make any good moral decision, you need moral information. And NCBC is here to give you that, <laughs> you know, which isn't necessarily to say you have to do what is our opinion, but it is to say, we've got a lot of resources. We've got a lot of expertise. We've got people who are reliable and trustworthy. We're faithful to the magisterium. And if you're looking to form your conscience well, you should really check out what we have to say and, and consider that and weigh that. So part of that ERD 28 is one, and the other is the Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 1785, which talks about how to form one's conscience and the things that go into forming one's conscience. And of course, you know, number one is praying, meditating on the word of God itself, also considering the authoritative teachings of the church, invoking the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But right in there in 1785, it also says the witness and advice of others. And so I would encourage people by just saying, we're here for you to give that witness and advice from our standpoint, bringing the gifts that God has given us and the resources he has given us to you as you try to make your decisions. And I hope that more people will, will avail themselves of this service. Very, very, very well stated. John DiCamillo, thank you for joining me today on Bioethics on Air. My pleasure, Joe. Thanks for having me. For more information on the topics discussed today and other bioethical issues, please visit our website, ncbcenter.org, where you can subscribe to our newsletter, as well as our publications, Ethics and Medics, and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. 
The views expressed in Bioethics on Air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, please contact me, your host, Joe Zalot, at jzalot at ncbcenter.org. Archived editions of the podcasts are available on our website. Please hover on the Blogs and Podcasts button on the main page, and then click Bioethics on Air. Finally, if you enjoy our podcasts, please subscribe to them. And if you would like to support them, as well as the mission and ongoing work of the NCBC, go to our website, again, ncbcenter.org, and click on the red Donate button. Thank you for listening, and may God's peace be with you.